0: The views and comments expressed on the space show by its guests, callers, and
1: listeners belong to them. The space show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the space show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. We have made a start by a 1. It's the Space Show with Dr. David Livingston. Broadcasting for seven continents,
0: consistently bringing you new, quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new
2: space economy. Here is the founder and host of the Space Show, the man who best articulates the vision of space commercial enterprise, Dr. David Livingston.
1: Good morning, listeners. Welcome to our Friday morning space show program, California Time. I am your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we have a most interesting program, uh, which I will tell you about in just a minute, along with our two guests. Uh, First, a couple of very short announcements. Uh, One is we're on the 60-minute format today, so please pay attention to the time, and if you have an email or phone call, comment, or question, or want to talk to either or both of our guests, please make sure you pay attention to the time so you can do it while we're still broadcasting. Um, We have a full show for next week, so pay attention to the website newsletter, and they will uh, start to be published tomorrow through Sunday. And then one other thing that I've been commenting on uh, over the past couple of days, we are in the process of migrating our website from a Drupal 7 management system to Drupal 8. This is a major migration. It's not an easy transition, unfortunately. So if you find things that aren't working, uh, call them to my attention, because I may not know they're not working, and Spencer may not know they're not working. So help us out uh, with uh, your eyes and ears. And, uh, just send me an email to space at com. If you see a, a feature or something doesn't work, make sure we know about it. And, uh, I totally appreciate that. For today, our toll-free number is 866-687-7223. No call screeners, let the phone ring, and we'll get you on air as quickly as possible. Remember, the space show is a talk show, so we do prefer talking. But in addition, uh, we do receive your emails. And that email address, if you prefer using email, is DrSpace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. And of course, you can post comments on our blog. And that is thespaceshow.com all the way to the far right for upcoming show menu. And then this is the first show listed with uh, Dr. Betta and Dr. Pollock. Open it up, scroll down to the bottom. And like on most blogs, you'll see a place for comments or uh, posting whatever it is you have to offer. And as soon as you hit send, I'll get a copy of it and can integrate your commentary into our discussion today. But once again, we do prefer the toll free number 1-866-687-7223. A couple of other quick questions. Note the website newsletter. When you do note it, it's on the upper right of our homepage. By the way, uh, do note the schedule uh, going through um, the first early days of October. It's filling up rapidly, and if you have guest suggestions for us, please let me know. Uh, and I'm happy to work on um, your guest suggestions for you. The best way to do that is email Doctor Space at thespaceshow.com. Uh, there's a menu in the upper left of our website. So uh, check that out, especially listen live. That tells you how to listen to live shows and podcasts. If you have any questions, please do email me, again, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Don't forget we have a store if you're interested in Space Show logo wear. Easiest way to enter our store is click on any of the photos of Pepper listening to the Space Show and follow her to our Cafe Press store. Uh, don't forget we're a nonprofit 501c3 with OneGiantLeapFoundation.org. We're listener-supported, which means you, the listener, financially contribute to us as a nonprofit, and uh, it is your funding that keeps the space show going and has us uh, getting great guests like we have again today. Uh, the best way to support us is there's a big PayPal link at the top of all of our home pages and space show website pages. Uh, but if you prefer using checks rather than uh, electronic contributions, uh, then uh, make your check payable to one giant LEAP Foundation, and it mails to Box 95, Tiburon, California, 94920. We also do sponsorships. We have a few left. So the sponsors get that banner ad going across our homepage. You can change the banner as often as you like. On longer format shows, I read sponsor messages. On the shorter formatted shows like today, I give a shout out to our great sponsors, which include Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, the uh, Space Development Network, Celestis, and the National Space Society. So uh, please do uh, let us hear from you if you're interested in becoming a sponsor. I'd be happy to answer any questions, Dr. Space at thespaceshow.com. So, uh, listeners, we have two terrific guests with us today. One is a guest who's been on the program many, many times, Dr. James Vetta, and he is a senior policy analyst performing policy research and evaluation for various government agencies, and um, he's part of the Aerospace Corporation His full bio is on the Space Show website, so I urge you to read it. We are also joined for the first time, and we welcome Dr. George Pollock to the show. He is an associate director of the astrodynamics department at the Aerospace uh, Corporation. Read his full bio. But Jim and George uh, jointly wrote a paper for the Center for Space Policy and Strategy back in June of this year that caught my attention, Cis Lunar Stewardship Planning for Sustainability and International Cooperation. I asked them both to come on the show to discuss Sis Lunar Stewardship. Uh Jim and George, welcome to the space show. Jim, why don't you lead us off? Tell us what the Center for Space Policy and Strategy is and introduce us to your paper.
3: Thanks a lot, David. It's uh, good to be back. It's been three years since I've been on the program, so uh, long gap there, but it's uh, nice to be uh, talking to you and your listeners again. So the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at uh, Aerospace Corporation uh, is headquartered in our, our Arlington, Virginia office, and um, we are the uh, policy component of the company as uh most people know who are aware of the what aerospace does we're primarily an engineering company supporting uh government uh, space efforts of all kinds so we we do have this policy component in the washington area and uh that has been around for uh, almost 20 years now but it uh, was very small until about three, three three-and-a-half years ago when we began uh, expanding, and one of the things that we did was to start publishing a series of papers online, and the paper we're going to talk about today is uh, one of the recent additions to that policy series. And, uh, by the way, uh, all of those papers are available for free download for anybody who's interested, and we hope you'll have a look at the the website. is is aerospace.org slash policy. And then in the middle of the page, you'll see um, a little button that says Papers, and you can see a whole array of things that, that we've published. Uh, the paper that George and I did uh, that came out uh, last month was prompted by some discussions that George and I were having late last year about uh, how the expansion of human activity into broader cislunar space is going to affect the way that we have to behave, uh, in order to sustainably operate in space. Um, so th- this is our expanded neighborhood. You know, we're, g- we're growing as a space-faring species now. And, uh, and the first step is to, is to move out into cislunar space. Uh, for, for all of our careers, you know, most of the action and most of the discussion has been about, uh, low Earth orbit or LEO, uh, out to geosynchronous orbit or geo so we are talking about a vastly greater expanse uh, to cover uh, all the way out to the moon and orbits related uh, to the moon so so this this is a a, a new plateau that we 're supposed to be um, moving out onto and it 's unclear how some of the some of the rules, some of the practices that we've had in the past will apply to these new orbital regimes. Um, We uh, clearly have some rules that apply across the board to what we uh, do out there, and we'll probably talk about some of these along the way. But uh, there are a lot of things where we do not really specify what we're going to be required to do, and in fact need to do some more research to find out what the most sustainable behaviors are going to be uh, so. I, I guess the, um, uh, uh, the, the the first thing that we uh, that we need to do in our our effort to educate folks that um, that uh, we we need to develop our policies and practices uh, a little more. Uh, across civil, commercial, and national security space, all of which will be using cislunar space, is, is to make sure everybody understands the, the, the geography that we're, that we're talking about. And I guess at this point I should turn it over to to George, um, who is the mathematical genius who can actually figure out uh, all of these orbits. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, George can, can explain exactly what we mean by cislunar. Uh, what does that entail? So I'll hand it over to you, George.
1: Uh, hi, George. We- welcome to the Space Show. How are you? Very well. Thank you, David,
2: and thank you for having Jim and I on the show today. It's a pleasure uh, to be here.
1: Uh, likewise. So what is meant by cislunar geography and, and orbits? And I guess there's a lot of competition for good orbits, right? Uh, I would say that there,
2: there could be expected to be competition in the future, for sure, for a number of these uh, very useful locations in the Earth-Moon system. So what do we mean by cislunar? Uh, the term itself, cislunar, uh, strictly refers to the space from the Earth's surface to the Moon's orbital altitude. Uh, the Moon is about 400,000 kilometers or a quarter of a million miles uh, from the Earth. Uh, so that's a tremendously large volume. And they're in this um, combined gravitational region uh, in the vicinity of the Earth and the Moon, uh, there are five special points called Lagrange points uh, that represent points of relative gravitational equilibrium uh, about which we can find some interesting orbital behaviors. Uh, We can find some orbits that are relatively stable and and can be maintained uh, without much uh, station keeping, and some others that with a little bit of station keeping can can be turned into useful uh, quasi-periodic or repeating orbits uh, that give us some some really interesting properties. Uh, For example, The L2 Lagrange point, which is about 60,000 kilometers on the far side of the moon, away from the Earth, um, is the nexus of a a family of what what are called halo orbits that orbit about that L2 Lagrange point in the manner such that one could use it as a communication relay platform uh, to have continuous line of sight to the lunar far side and to the Earth's surface. In fact, we've seen China exercise this. It's a concept long understood uh, for you know, since the 60s, really, uh, that that could, could enable far side lunar surface operations. And in 2018, the Chinese launched a uh, lunar communications relay into such an orbit uh, in support of their uh, 2019 uh, far side robotic lunar landing. So we're definitely seeing some new forays into the interesting orbits in the Earth-Moon neighborhood, and we expect that that trend will continue in the near future.
1: Is there any regulation of those orbits now, or is it just pretty much do what you want to do?
2: So there. Is no construct in these orbits that would be a parallel to the International Telecommunications Union registry of frequencies in the geosynchronous orbit, for example, uh, which serves you know, to, to provide some physical deconfliction and uh, certainly some more robust uh, radio frequency uh, deconfliction in the geo belt. Uh, so that's, that's an uh, element of a broader sustainability paradigm that probably needs to be uh, further researched and uh, refined and ultimately agreed upon internationally as activities increase in these locations. How will we share, for example, halo orbits about the Lagrange points as they become uh, increasingly popular?
1: Are the other Lagrange point orbits uh, useful and um, and essential and important, or are the halo orbits the, the most useful ones?
2: It all depends on the application of interest. Uh, the HALO orbits uh, certainly are, are valuable uh, for communication relay, like I mentioned, around L2. Uh, over the years, folks have uh, appreciated the uh, relative stability of orbits uh, in the L4 and L5 vicinity, so those are, are leading and trailing the moon in its orbit. Uh, so, for example, you know many years ago, Folks uh, envisioned you know, space hotels, for example, at, at some of these uh, stable points in Earth-Moon system uh, that could be a you know, site of very massive um, structures in in the, the region and could serve as way stations or um, you know, large space stations and colonies. Now, you know, some of those ideas uh, from decades ago seem far-fetched today and uh, what folks are looking at, but they're, they're certainly other orbits in the Earth-Moon system, like the distant retrograde orbits that had been in view for uh, a sample return from an asteroid during uh, NASA's Asteroid Redirect Mission, uh, which had been pursued during the Obama administration. Uh, The concept there was to retrieve a boulder from an asteroid and return it to a distant retrograde orbit, which is actually an orbit about the Earth, but it has an apparent retrograde motion around the Moon. And... uh, the benefit of that orbit is it's very stable. Uh, one could put a, an uncontrolled you know, large rock retreat from an asteroid there and uh, basically park it there for quite some time, allowing astronauts to go out from Earth to visit it, collect samples, and then return.
1: Uh, gentlemen, I have uh, the first email question for the show is from Todd, who sends in a note from San Diego, and he said, I'm assuming that. Uh, all of Leo is part of cis and it's very congested. So, how do you make cis lunar uh, sustainable if you can't clean it up?
3: Well, yes, the the um, definition has, as George uh, related to, is everything from the surface of the Earth out to the Moon's orbit. So, technically, Leo is uh, included. The um, uh, uh, there's often a discussion of cislunar where people define it as things uh, beyond geo out to the moon, which is not really accurate. Um, uh, cleanup is one of the uh, things that we w- were trying to uh, address in our paper because we we look at the fact that early in the space age we had this big sky theory that uh it was so vast up there that we didn't really need to worry too much about things uh, colliding um, in the early days of the space age the uh, bigger a bigger concern was uh will the spacecraft be uh hit and damaged by little micrometeorites um and that turned out that that was far less of a threat than uh, what later developed in, in the debris problem. But that debris problem was not, uh, beginning to get seriously recognized until about the late 1970s. And, uh, and the real action to do something about it, uh, has been basically since the 1990s. Um, so, uh, in, in the, uh, in the paper as we discuss this, uh, this problem, it's, like well we would have probably done things a little differently in the old days had we been more forward thinking and known the things that we know today so the point we're trying to make is that the, the the first step in taking care of the stewardship of cislunar orbits is to uh to learn from the past and to apply the types of behaviors and the types of lessons that uh, that we learned there to these new cis lunar orbits right from the beginning, so that maybe we can uh, keep them preserved before we mess them up and have to go back and and, and clean up. So so the so Leo, I guess that that uh, to try and make a short answer to that question is that Leo was a training ground, and we saw we had a lot of failures. Now we have to fix that as we move out to new orbits.
1: Um so the commercial companies clearly the private sector you know entrepreneurial startup companies want to get in to cislunar and and actually go to the moon are they um unified enough as an industry to be uh, a participant in these discussions or are they all over the board just individual companies uh with this as a business goal, that as a business goal, but they're not sort of unified in, in the sense of trying to come up with policy and maybe uh, essential regulations to make life easier for people. How do you see the, the new emerging commercial industry?
3: Well, you know, my, my sense is that there's, there's great awareness to the sustainability of their actions for the, for the long term. And, and George can weigh in on his observations as well but my my sense is that they're 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 very aware of these things they are um, uh very inclined to participate in activities that would lead to uh, a set of rules or guidelines uh they're 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 not they're not as concerned about um, uh, that 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 guidelines would be a problem as they are uh, concerned that they might not be part of the conversation so as long as they're participants in the conversation for developing guidelines and norms of behavior, uh, they are happy to participate in that because there is a realization that it's in their their uh, long-term best interests. And, in fact, they are involved in, in things like the uh, – you, you may have heard of the group that was formed by DARPA that's called CONFERS, which is uh, uh, both government and private sector entities trying to develop uh, – uh, rules and norms for on-orbit servicing. Uh, so that type of activity has already started. And uh, so, so I think that the, the companies are, are aware and involved and, um, uh, and, and are not, not afraid to, to, to speak their minds about what uh, uh, would be in their interest and everybody else's long-term interest.
1: George, do you have any comment on that question? Yeah,
2: I'll just briefly uh, offer that, uh, you know, from my viewpoint, the uh, players in in the commercial sector are very focused on the engineering and business challenges they need to overcome. And in that sense, they either are or rightly should be uh, engaged in these types of policy discussions up front so that they uh, don't uh, suffer some significant disruption to their business model or their engineering design solutions uh, downstream uh, on account of having to you know, uh, have you know, expanded scope of requirements uh, to m- meet some some policy that's going to help uh, preserve the distributor and overall environment for everyone. Um,
1: another email came in from Lisa. Uh, she says she's in Seattle, and um, she says... Um, is there a chance with all the commercial activity as well as what goes on with civil and government that cislunar could actually be crowded? Is there a crowding in the orbits that you're talking about, or is there essentially unlimited space?
2: I can speak to that first. Uh, I would say that, you know, today there's there's little worry for for crowding in these orbits, um, but in the early in the mid-60s, there was little worry of crowding in GEO. Uh, so we, we definitely, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, couldn't have imagined the volume of traffic that we now see in LEO and GEO, for example. Uh, so I think it's, it's timely that we be considering uh, these things in terms of um, space sharing in these orbits, uh, deconfliction and collision avoidance, uh, space traffic management, as well as debris mitigation and disposal practices so that as activities increase we've got a, a paradigm in place from from the ground up as opposed to uh, trying to retrofit it after the activities become um, much more commonplace in these orbits
3: yeah you, got, you, you have to um, recognize that there may be some some hot spots and, and George earlier described the the Lagrange points. And those will be prized for the fact that they have their, the orbital stability so that you can stay there with minimal expenditure of energy by your spacecraft. So let's say we have some uh, growing activity over the coming decades that uh, includes a lot of back and forth to the moon, maybe some resource extraction on the moon, um, uh, maybe some space tourism uh, in, in that vicinity and uh and maybe the l1 point, which is between the Earth and the moon, um, uh, becomes something of a way station, or maybe it's where we put storage depots for for fuel or for things that are uh, mined on the moon and and sent up into uh, uh, into orbit. Uh, so, uh, you're, you're going to have this halo orbit around the l1 point which is going to be the stable point where people are going to want to use uh, that for for a, a way station um, so that that could be a popular congregating point that uh, could be you know, cause some some uh, dispute over how it's handled especially if debris is left behind and that debris is in this stable orbit where it it, it lingers for a very long time. Um, so it, it, it may seem fanciful to talk about such things now, but if we, if we look 40, 50 years down the road, we could find ourselves in, in certain uh, orbits that are valuable for, uh, as the Lagrange points are, and as certain uh, elliptical orbits around the moon that you want to have easy access to the poles uh because of the water ice there and maybe that orbit is going to get very populated um, we don't yet uh, uh know the uh and I think George can verify this that uh, how stable uh a discarded spacecraft or um, some other artifact is is going to be in that orbit and we have not yet established any kind of disposal orbit Close by. I mean, we, uh, maybe, maybe George, you'd like to address the, the disposal options and the questions that we still have about that.
1: Uh, yeah, that would be good. George, go forward. Sure. So, sort of building
2: on the paradigm that we have in Earth orbit today, uh, we can look to place discarded space systems into a long term storage orbit that is stable and, and will basically stay put and free of interference with other ongoing activities. Uh, we can cause systems to reenter the Earth's atmosphere, so if we're bringing back samples or returning human crew, of course that's the, the preferred means. Um, could potentially actively remove it, so you know, there are a number of uh, nascent efforts right now that are building out that technology to, to rendezvous with and capture uh debris and, and move it from a, a place where it may be interfering with, with other systems to a safer spot or potentially um, you know, remove it from orbit altogether uh, and then in in the earth moon uh, system and these newer orbits that we're talking about that may become more popular uh, crashing into the moon is uh, really a, a pretty common outcome that will happen if In certain cases, we we don't take uh, measures to prevent it. Uh, Many direct orbits about the moon are are so unstable that the orbit lifetimes are measured in months, and and the system will just crash into the lunar surface if you leave it there. Um, Some of these halo orbits like, are being considered for NASA's uh, Lunar Gateway. Uh, Depending on uh, when and with what velocity and what direction you depart that place, say it's a, a discarded, empty cargo resupply vessel, uh, it could crash into the moon, or you could potentially cause it to depart the Earth-Moon system altogether and escape into a heliocentric orbit. So the complexity of the uh, dynamics in this environment causes us to, to really need to, to do our homework and understand uh, what the long-term behavior of, of these discarded systems will be and to build confidence that when we actually execute a disposal uh, maneuver, that the system will, uh, in fact, go where we intend.
1: Uh, gentlemen, I have another email question for you. It, it is Paul in Denver, and he says, um, I'm a space enthusiast or an advocate. I don't work in the industry, but I'm primarily interest, interested in space settlement. Uh, I particularly am interested in settlement on Mars, but I'm open to the O'Neill idea of free space settlements and, of course, the moon as a short-term location for settlement. How important is lunar development and the, the policies and best practices that you're talking about to kicking off the space settlement industry? Is it crucial? Is it just another part of space? Uh, how are we interested in settlement supposed to see the cislunar development that you're talking about
3: so uh, as you know David I've written a lot of things about this and and over the years of studying this I've become very very convinced that uh, learning how to live and behave in cislunar space is the key to everything beyond uh, this is like if I can make the analogy of growing up as a little kid in your in your own neighborhood you know when you're very small you only get to play in your own backyard, and then as you get a little bit older, you get to go out into the broader neighborhood. Uh, but you do all of this expansion gradually in your life. You don't go uh, uh, right from riding your, riding your tricycle down the street to um, uh, uh, to intercontinental journeys. Uh, you know, there's there's a progression there, um, and it's going to be the same as we move out into space. So, the, so the things that we need to learn. About, uh, how to, to live and work and, and create value in space, uh, are, are all going to be learned in the, uh, cislunar environment, uh, because we have a neighborhood that we can traverse in, in a few days time, uh, and we can continue to communicate with only very brief communication delays. We have to learn in that environment before we go out to some place like Mars, for example. Uh, at its closest point, Mars is something like 145 times further away than the Moon. So uh, that's that's pretty darn challenging. So we we really need my my motto is is has always been, you know, this is the exploration and development of space. So it's more important to get it right than to do it fast. Because if you do it fast and you don't get it right, then you're actually going to slow down your migration out into space. Because the setbacks will last years and even decades. Uh, so, uh, so to, to me, the, the the development of our skills and abilities, uh, to, to learn to live off the land away from the earth, all of that kind of stuff, uh, is going to be developed in cis lunar space absolutely essential before we seriously think about building our cities on Mars.
1: So um, just taking that the next step for, forward, if we are betting money on the uh, publicly stated goals of SpaceX and Mr. Musk about starting humans on Mars, which is coming up pretty close if Starship actually flies and works, you would say that's too fast am i correct cuz I, uh, I don't yeah. know if they're learning anything from or space
3: no I, I think that that uh, that musk and others who you know firmly believe that that uh, we we don't want to waste time that we want to start establishing uh a a more expansive uh, solar system civilization and mars is the next stop for doing that I, I understand what they're saying, but I don't think that the hurry up and go to Mars is the is the wise approach uh, to do that. Um, because there are a lot of things that we need uh, to, to learn yet about living off the planet. Um, uh, the, every description that I see about uh, a quick settlement of Mars uh, uh, kind of writes off some hard questions. Uh, like, for example, supply lines you know there's just an assumption that that uh, the vast majority of necessities can be obtained right there on Mars and anything that can't be can easily be provided from Earth at apparently no cost um, so uh, that's that's not going to prove true I don't think there's also the you know the radiation exposure issue because you have on the surface of Mars you have a a um very substantial uh, radiation exposure that uh, we have have not figured out a good way to to shelter against uh, just yet um uh, and and I see people just kind of writing that off as oh that's not really a problem these are going to be rugged pioneers and they'll they'll just tough it through no this is radiation exposure uh this is a tough question uh so um uh it, th- there's a lot that needs to be learned closer to home uh, so that when we go out, we will be ready, and we won't have just numerous setbacks that will waste
2: decades.
1: Uh, George, do you have a comment on that question? or Otherwise, I have another email for you.
2: And just to say I tend to agree with Jim that a lot of the operational proficiencies that we need to develop uh, are best honed in Earth-Moon system first, where in transit times are measured in three or four days one way as opposed to six months one way when the planets are aligned. So the, the ability to deal with uh, engineering anomalies and abort scenarios is far more uh, friendly in the Earth-moon system. And even then, it's pretty challenging if something goes awry. So uh, I think we should continue to cut our teeth here. And, and then there are things that we we can't necessarily uh, um, demonstrate on the moon, you know, if, if we're actually able to, uh, produce propellants, uh, using in situ resources on Mars, those are distinctly different from those found on the moon. So there will be things that we need to add to our, uh, capabilities as we go out to Mars. But a good number of those things that can be built, uh, and tested in Earth-Moon system, I, I feel ought to be, uh, from a, a confidence of, uh, Success approach, like like
1: can indicated. I have another email. For, this is from uh, Dr. Doug in Redlands, California, in Southern California. Does cis lunar environment include lunar surface activity? Because cis lunar space contains no material resources. Anybody? Well,
0: so I guess the uh, the way the
3: way we're defining it, the moon is included uh, in. Uh, in cislunar lunar activities so so yes, lunar resources would would play into um, uh, uh, future activities now um, I, I guess the one one of the things that I always like to emphasize too is that we have certain things certain applications that we're very familiar with and have become quite mature, and you can just basically break those down to um, communications, navigation, and various types of remote sensing to include weather monitoring. Um, and we do all of that stuff with terrestrial aims. Uh, now what we need to do is we need to expand the infrastructure so that it covers as much as possible of cislunar space, not just everything aimed at the Earth. So as you get out further, you you need you need to have navigation, but the existing uh g p s system for example is not designed to provide navigation in the vicinity of the moon um, uh you need uh communications relays uh you need some uh some remote sensing you're going to need uh, other types of infrastructure such as uh the on orbit servicing uh you want to over time get less and less dependent on going back to earth for everything every time you have a need or a problem um, so uh, uh, you know all of this is is going to take a long time to establish this this infrastructure and one of the essential things that we have to figure out um, that has been a, a dilemma since the uh, since the end of the Apollo era is that the the infrastructure is a uh, a set of systems that all have to work in concert. And look at what we've done so far. Well, we we have this Earth-to-orbit system that we were using called the Space Shuttle, and then once we, uh, once we built the next piece of infrastructure, the, the International Space Station, we decommissioned the shuttle. And now we're talking about that we would decommission the International Space Station maybe in 2030 or whenever the date will be. Uh, you, you can't build one piece of infrastructure and then have that close down as soon as the next one appears, and that one closes down before the third one appears. You know, these things all have to be developed uh, and, uh, and concurrently and operate together, and the only way to do that is by a very expansive effort that, that includes uh, governments around the world and the commercial sector around the world and all the investment that, that can be obtained through that process, uh, the, the, the the process of uh, annual budgets by uh, a few major uh, space agencies around the world uh, are, are not going to cut it for the long term of space development the way most of us have been envisioning it.
1: Uh, gentlemen, I have a great email. This one I love is from... Um, Ben and uh Ben just says he's inside the beltway, whatever that means. Okay, I don't I don't know his last name or anything else. By the way, listeners, there's still plenty of time if you want to call us rather than using email. 1 866 687 We would love to talk to you. Uh Ben says, since um you obviously believe that cislunar is important, my question is If we judge importance by how much money we're willing to spend or invest on something, what should the proper NASA or government budget be for space to develop Cislunar and to establish the best practices that you talk about in your paper? I have already downloaded it, and I've speed-read through it, so I have a general idea of what you're talking about. I'll read it more later. But, again, if we're valuing the importance of space, uh, cislunar space, it would seem to me the value could be represented by dollar. So what is all this going to cost, and what should the proper amount by the government be spent or invested in cislunar development?
3: Well, I, I don't want to go for a particular dollar amount because, uh, as i I think I was trying to emphasize a minute ago is we need to have some type of uh, partnership with uh, private industry we need to have partnerships across space agencies in different countries uh, we We need to have everybody uh, working on top of their game so um, uh, how much that we spend in this country will will depend on the particular programs we choose to 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 specialize in now, for example, one of the things that if we look at NASA's Artemis program, um, a lot of people talk about Artemis as we're going back to the moon as a stepping stone to Mars well uh, to the extent that we invest in a stepping stone to Mars uh, and and maybe don't give enough attention to uh, sustainable, lasting developments on the moon, then cislunar is going to be shortchanged. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of argument, uh, as a lot of your listeners probably are aware, about whether we need to have the Gateway Space Station. Um, and uh, one of the biggest arguments in favor of it has been That's somehow going to be used in a future Mars mission. So now you've, you've hooked your cislunar development to the Mars mission. And if that falls out of favor or if there's, uh, uh, you know, any other reason that, that Mars would uh, fall off of the budgeting, then it carries the cislunar investment down with it. And that's why I think these things should be considered. (laughs) uh uh separately um and um and, and and also make sure that you don't initiate projects that you you make it sound like it's some kind of space olympics and you're trying to be the the the, the first one at the finish line um uh, uh because that does not get uh very uh very good support across the board uh when you go outside Members of the space community and advocacy, um, uh, groups. Um let me look at what's, what's happened now is that the, the, the administration has requested a budget increase for NASA for fiscal year 21. Uh, that is a 12% increase. And as you probably saw in the news, uh, of this past week, uh, it does not look like, from the, these initial steps, there's a long way to go in the budget yet, but in these initial steps, it does not look like the Congress is going to go for that, that 12% uh, increase, because, uh, that is, well, budget times are tough in general, of course, but, uh, they're, uh, they're also concerned about cuts to programs that, um, uh, that are, are favored by Congress and their constituents. Uh, uh in, in that twelve uh, percent increase for uh, for NASA, uh, you, you still saw an attempt to cut some Earth science missions and to zero out the STEM education budget at NASA. And we've seen that Congress does not believe that that should uh, should hold true. Um, so uh, if we're going to continue to rely on on just what is in NASA's budget, to set the pace uh and uh and the uh, the, the parameters of development of CisLunar space that's that's not going to work that's going to be that's going to be a hard slog and uh uh and the the, the partnerships uh angle has to be uh developed uh, much more fully so i've been talking a long time let me get off, get off my my uh, soapbox here and let let george have a chance
1: george you want to continue to comment Sure. I think you know to, to accomplish
2: the things that, that Jim has been discussing in terms of the, the system or infrastructure, it's going to be measured in many billions of dollars. Clearly, uh, I think that the the key call in our paper is that much of the policy paradigms that need to be put in place or extended uh, to uh, provide a, a rules of the road, so to speak, for these activities. The the analysis, the research, the coordination necessary there is is probably measured in the the millions of dollars. So I think the view I have is that a a small investment, relatively speaking, uh, to get everyone onto a unified uh, sustainability framework at the outset of these activities could really help to safeguard a much larger investment that's, uh, the U.S., uh, other space-faring nations, and a number of commercial entities uh, are standing to make in the future.
1: Um, Sharon is in Tucson, uh, and she says, um, David always asks guests a question. I'm surprised he hasn't asked it yet, and, and that is it's one thing to talk about these programs and sell them to a space-interested and well-informed community, but most of America is not space-interested, and I suspect not that space-informed either, to what degree does the general population have to go along with some form of advanced cis-lunar development, such as what we've been talking about today, or is it important to even have the general population involved in this discussion? Anyone want to take that one?
3: Well, you know, I... I Uh, to some extent follow the the polling on uh, questions related to space and uh, and the interesting thing that you find in the past uh, three to four years uh, from multiple polls uh, conducted by different polling organizations and David you've probably seen these um, uh, they 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 ask for a prioritization of what uh, NASA or the US space program should be doing, and maybe you know, give a dozen different uh, 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 types of programs, and and ask their uh, the people in the polls to to, um, uh, to prioritize them. And what has repeatedly and very strongly come through is that the 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 number one priority is studying climate change, and the number two priority is studying uh, planetary defense against uh, asteroid impacts and that missions to the moon and missions to mars with humans are always at the bottom of the list so if the if the polls and you know i tend to you know everybody has their skepticism of polls but when when i see uh, repeated polls over a period of years all saying the same thing i start to think that maybe there's something there so uh we 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 have to recognize that uh uh two things first that we should be attending to the areas that the constituency uh finds highest priority for the expenditure of their tax dollars uh we should uh, you know not be cutting those back to try and do other programs that they find less compelling and the other thing is that uh, we need to be better educating the um uh the constituents about what is the long term value of doing something like a cis lunar development program uh that's really hard because you can't do it in 25 words or less you you have to uh, you have to explain to people first what you're already getting in benefits from space and then extrapolate from that what more could be benefiting earth uh... by doing these additional things because we're talking about going to n- new plateaus of activity here uh... going beyond the the notion of every every application that we have that uh... uh... Um, that that adds value to lots of people on earth is based on passing electromagnetic magnetic signals back and forth uh, through communications relays or through the navigation satellites or through taking pictures of the Earth and sending the data back, things of that nature. We're getting beyond that to where we're, we want to do actual physical manipulation of stuff in space and try and gain benefits from that. And that's 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 a hard jump to make and an expensive one. And we have to make sure that people recognize what the long-term benefits are going to be. And that's tough in a in a society when uh, you can see that that uh thinking long term is difficult for a lot of people, especially when we're going through something like a crisis situation like the the uh pandemic uh, um, uh difficulties that uh that we have now, the economy uh having problems and those immediate things take away attention from those long term um, uh benefits and uh and that and that's a difficult uh, uh nut to crack so so that's my so, George. Over to you.
2: Yeah, I tend to agree, Jim. That the uh, there, there's a, a long-term view in the uh, uh, developing and, and maintaining the the buy-in from from the populace, as well as uh, there needs to be a a good bit of runway uh, in terms of you know. Mm-hmm. We, we, we seem to live in a microwave-focused society, and uh, this, the development of lunar infrastructure will take, at best, many years. Uh, and you know, if, if the budgets don't move substantially across the uh, set of invest, investing parties, uh, it will take decades to, to realize fully. So uh, it, it, there, there needs to be you know, not only the, the benefits in the long haul, but the patience and the, the uh, steadiness
1: a purpose to pull it all off. Uh, gentlemen, I have a caller on the line. At uh, least I think it's still a caller. Hang on. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? This is Doug from Redwood, California. Hi, Doug. Good to hear from you. How are you?
0: Uh, doing well. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just want to jump in. Unfortunately, I didn't hear the first part of your show, so I'm not quite sure uh, I, I understand the, the, the general picture, but... I'd just like to say or just like to ask, could international involvement um, be basically um, American companies establish a fairly cost effective transportation system to the surface of the men, and then countries could purchase as many seats as they you know would like and, and could afford do Do we need a whole bunch of international collaboration and government to uh, government? Planning in order to do lunar development
3: well we we need to uh, recognize first that there's a lot of things that need to be done, and secondly, that we we don't want to have too much duplication of efforts. Uh, so coordinating on who's going to do what and at what pace uh, makes a lot of sense, especially since all of these pieces are supposed to fit together at the same time. Uh, so that's my my short answer to it, George.
2: I think there's a a number of options. We've spoken to the fact that uh, partnerships and collaboration uh, will will help us um, basically tackle this large challenge um, more expediently um, with sort of a a crowdfunded approach. And, you know, whether that's uh, heavily leveraging public-private partnerships or it's commercial entities uh, basically picking out uh, particular capabilities, whether that's transport, communication, navigation, uh, and so on that they'll undertake uh, i think we'll we'll see you know the opportunity for complementary uh, pieces of, of that infrastructure to be laid in uh, and, and like jim said we, we want to avoid a multi-billion dollar duplication of effort uh, in so doing so uh, th- there are a number of different paths probably to, to realize this this vision and so the, the, what you've uh, alluded to there doug with significant commercial investment that could be a a conduit to other participants. I think that's a really appealing angle that that ought to be considered here.
0: So um, do do you think there needs to be uh, propellant depots in the system space? Do you you think there needs to be – is the International Space Station necessary? I mean, the the SpaceX proposed architecture, you know, sort of the long-term architecture – requires no infrastructure in this lunar space. Uh, they refuel their uh, uh, empty starship uh, in Earth orbit, so, so there's no stationary depot there. Uh, and then they don't do anything. They don't do gateway. They just go, you know, to the directly surface in, in their original architecture.
1: Any of you want to comment on that?
3: Uh well, see we 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 have to first of all look at what you know, what is the mission that they're trying to accomplish uh and uh, what type of hardware are they using to do that. Um uh I I I have uh I have some doubts about the, the um, uh use of um of uh, fuel depots in space, uh because you have to uh first of all you have to settle on the right type of fuel. It's gonna be uh, if it's going to be a cryogenic fuel, that's very difficult to store for uh, any long periods of time. And is that going to be the type of fuel that is going to be needed um, uh, for the various spacecraft that uh, are going to be operating uh, in, in the vicinity? Are you um, uh, going to make it available widely so that it's like a gas station where you pull up to the pump and just swipe your credit card and fill your tank? or is it going to be a, a unique facility for uh, a particular application and nobody else can use it? Um,
0: so But, but, but hold, on, hold on. Let me interrupt right here. You yeah. you are making the assumption that there will be multiple people using the same, uh, you know, transportation system, for example. And what I'm saying is that if SpaceX, it's not even full reusability. If they get Starship to orbit, I doubt that there's going to be anybody else that on a uh, dollars-per-kilogram uh, basis could be able to beat SpaceX price probably for at least years, if not you know 10 years or more. Uh, and, I, and I think SpaceX is going to continually push the edge, so they're going to get, remain out in front. So I don't see the need for interoperability in terms of propellant. I think, that if we can get uh, a Starship uh, working, obviously SpaceX can get Starship working, uh, I don't see the need to take other companies into account because I simply don't think they're going to be out cost-effective. Your thoughts? Okay. Uh, so
3: you're, you're talking about just the transportation back and forth. Um, there's there's other things that have to happen. Uh, uh, SpaceX is not at this point talking about providing uh, on orbit servicing of any type that's going to be a big factor in cislunar lunar uh, infrastructure there will be uh stations of some kind in various cis-lunar orbits that will be doing research that may be doing some type of manufacturing um, uh that uh, will require to uh, the, the supplies and uh, you know cargo runs to um, uh to those points wherever they might be um, uh there could be the um, uh experiments and even eventually operational systems doing uh power beaming uh in cis lunar space uh so there will be the assembly and operation of of solar power satellites you know th- this is you know the transportation is of course an important key thing if you don't have transportation you can't do any of this but that's just the first step there are so many other things that need to be done in order to live and work productively in space and learn everything that you need to do to go further out into space, uh, that, uh, um, uh, in the time frame that George and I are talking about, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, at the, uh, half century to century scale of development, uh, and it goes well beyond the various things that, uh, SpaceX is, uh, Uh, Proposing now. I I expect them to be a huge player for a long time to come, but in certain aspects of the development of space, not in all aspects.
0: There's plenty of work for everybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, are you including Leo as part of this lunar space? Yeah. It's not totally close to the moon.
3: Yeah, well, as you said, you missed the beginning of the program And there. Well, the, the, the real definition, as George uh, explained earlier, it's of cislunar space is everything from the Earth's surface out to the, out to the moon's orbit. So it includes all of the lower orbit uh, activity. You, you may have heard in some uh, places that uh, some, some people define it as everything between geo and the moon, but that's not actually accurate. Okay, and does the standard definition
2: include the lunar surface? Uh, George, you want to speak to that? Yeah, we spoke to that earlier, and in the, the intent here with, with our view is that um, yeah, it would include all operations that basically happen in the Earth-Moon the Earth uh, joint sphere of influence and uh, down to, to the lunar surface. Uh, so. You in in planning for disposal of systems in uh, the lunar vicinity in particular, we need to take care that uh, we understand if any of those systems are going to crash into the lunar surface and if they do, um, that they do so in a manner that doesn't interfere with or put at risk uh, any human or robotic operations on the surface.
0: So, I I mean, the, the way I view things is I view the lunar surface as being key because that's where the known resources are. Uh, so you can uh, dramatically reduce your, your the amount of mass that you need to depart from LEO if you can, uh, you know, do ISRU on lunar surface. I consider LEO to be really a, a separate part of the picture because I think LEO can be serviced by a different transportation system than what is optimized to go to the moon. Uh, and I am a bit concerned that uh, LEO commercialization, you know, like a, a – uh, gapless transition to a commercial station in LEO. I'm sort of concerned about that because uh, a lot of money could be spent on an annual basis supporting that transition and supporting a manufacturing or, or whatever, uh, you know, research labs in LEO that right now there's not really good evidence that that's going to be profitable and so what may need long-term subsidies. And I think the, if that's coming from national budgets, such as NASA, then I would have concerns about money uh, being able to to be used for development of, of lunar surface infrastructure. But any thoughts about that?
3: Oh, uh, well, the the, um, uh, the the if I if I understood correctly, though, you're you're concerned about how. NASA investment is going to drive this uh, uh, to a certain goal of um, uh, uh, putting up particular facilities like the International Space Station. I, I think George and I are trying to keep a more wide-open view of the different ways things could go over a decades-long period in which, uh, if a manufacturing facility, for example, is, is established. Now, let's say let's say you get you've got mining on the moon and you use raw materials from the moon to do some type of uh orbital manufacturing and you decide to put your manufacturing facility in a nice stable place like an L1 uh, halo orbit um, that's a scenario that that could happen but we are not going to know for a long time whether that's the right path uh because we are still at the early investment stage of uh of figuring these things out and and NASA and other government space agencies around the world are going to have a role in this kind of thing for a long time alongside the private sector. Uh, and, and the private sector wants them to be there to help with the investment and to, um, uh, to provide some, uh, some support to things that they cannot necessarily justify in their own company budgets. So I'm not sure if I'm getting at the point. You were you were making there, but uh, but this long long term view is what I'm saying.
1: Doug, we're getting a lot of noise when you talk on your phone. Do you, is there a background conversations or what? It's really hard to understand you.
0: Yeah, I'm of a location where that's difficult. So let me go ahead and sign off, and I appreciate uh, appreciate your guys' perspective.
1: Thank you very much. Um, I know, guys. We uh, we talked about doing the sixty minute format. We're a little over that right now. W- what are your recommendations in your paper, and will sort of head us toward the the conclusion? And hopefully, people will will go download load the paper. I'll put the link for it in the in the archive summary of the program. W- what are your recommendations?
3: Uh, well, George, you want to do the uh, summary uh, like like you did in the last webinar? You prepared to to do that?
1: Sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So looking forward, there are a number of facets that need to be addressed with respect to sustainability and getting international agreements on a paradigm that all players will engage in. One of the first investments and enhancements that will be needed is to expand space domain awareness capabilities that currently are focused on Earth orbits out to about geo- Uh, to these much higher altitudes, the the moon's about 10 times farther out than the geosynchronous belt. So we need uh, substantially enhanced capability to monitor space traffic and to be able to uh, do collision avoidance and and deconfliction of these activities. The second point I would offer is that after we build those sensors and can detect, track, and monitor activities out there, then we need the space traffic management protocols, and and Jim mentioned L1 as a a great example. There may be uh, steady operations going on in uh, orbits about L1, like halo orbits. That's uh, on the near side uh, of the moon, about 60,000 kilometers towards the Earth. But many objects in transit between the Earth and the moon will pass in that vicinity as well. So we need to make sure that that uh, essentially is a state shipping money, if you will, well uh, also hosting uh, persistent traffic there. And as the number of operations increase, we need to formulate debris mitigation and disposal practices, which will motivate further analysis of these complex orbit dynamics so that we can uh, develop high confidence means of establishing stable orbits, uh, also defining protected regions of, of highly valuable orbits for various mission applications, and ensuring that uh, the disposal methods that are are employed are are done so with uh, appropriate uh, probability of success. And then the last thing, uh, we haven't discussed uh, in great detail today the the policy implications, so maybe this will be a good teaser for folks to go look at the paper. Uh, There are some significant ownership and transparency challenges that uh, pertain to space salvage. Uh, For example, one cannot go remove a a space object left by another party today, uh, even if it's just to try to get it out of a a useful orbit. Uh, So there are a number of uh, elements of international law and policy that need to be uh, adjusted so that discarded objects can be actively removed from useful orbits. Jim, is there anything else you would add?
3: Well, I think uh, you covered it pretty well. I just uh, would encourage all listeners to, uh, to to look up our paper and, and see uh, see the details on that and also look at the great graphics that George came up with uh, from one of his colleagues um, uh, to, to give a good re- visual representation of the different orbits that we're talking about. Uh, I find the graphics pretty striking in emphasizing the grand scale of cislunar space compared to the 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 geo belt, which looks minuscule by comparison,
1: is there a way for interested space uh, enthusiasts to somehow uh, be part of or contribute to the um, cis lunar discussion? That's probably going to be ongoing for a long time to come. How can people be a part of it, or do they have to be in the industry somehow to be a part of it?
3: Uh, be a part of it in, in I'm not sure in what way In it,
1: well they, they have ideas Yeah, well for advocacy or they may have commentary that, that they want to submit or they may have ideas or uh, you know they, they want to participate in space um, and then because they're an enthusiast they don't want to be stepped out since they're not engineers or not working for a space company they sort of want to be included so how does someone get included or do they
3: uh well i you know I'd recommend people who are not in the business can still subscribe to some of the news that's go- of what's going on in the business and and it's amazing how quickly you can get into some some interesting depth and and really uh, find um, uh, that a great learning experience from uh, daily email newsletters that are that are free that come out from from like space news uh, or from uh it's one called spacepolicyonline.com um and i'm sure david you're familiar with these and uh, those all um, have uh opportunities for some uh online discussion uh, uh about the news um, there's uh you know there's there's a variety of, of websites you know space.com or um, uh the space review that that, that uh, allows some discussion and allow you to keep uh, informed about a broad array of um, uh, approaches to the future. So uh, I, I, would, I would just recommend that people just stay informed through those many great sources that you can get online and participate uh, where available in in the discussions that uh, that they have. You'll learn about um, conferences, and now uh, so many conferences have gone virtual that uh, may open it up for a lot more people since you don't have to travel to them. Um, uh, So, yeah, you know, use the Internet to your advantage.
1: Uh, I like to suggest Jeff Vow's Space Review because if you can write a a short article about your ideas, Jeff is pretty open about uh, publishing things. You don't have to be a famous person to get published on the Space Review. And uh, lots and lots and lots of people, including policy wonks, read the Space Review and, and may see what it is you're writing, and it's a great way to contribute.
3: Yeah, and and if you want to learn some of the history, another thing that we have at uh, aerospace.org slash policy, there's a button there that says archives, and I have posted there well over 300 historical space policy documents, uh, mostly U.S., but a few foreign as well, um, uh, going all the way back to the Eisenhower administration. Wow. So it's – I don't think there's a one-stop shop anywhere else on the Internet that has this many – Space policy documents for the full history of the space age all in one place so if anybody's researching that or just wants to learn some of the history and that it's it's there and and i'm keeping it maintained so
1: great uh, i'll i'll put the link to that too on the in the summary of the show
3: great great appreciate that uh,
1: gentlemen i want to thank you very much for uh being on the space show and jim for coming back three years is way too long i hope we can <laughs> uh do it more often and, and george you too and uh I wish you guys a great weekend. I'll send you the program when it's archived, and we thank you very much for your time and for being with us this morning and for your great work on cislunar stewardship. Um, And um, listeners, we thank you for your email participation, Doug's call. Everybody have a a good weekend. Keep it safe. And uh, once again, goodbye from uh, George and goodbye from James, David, and the space show. As always, people keep looking up. Goodbye, everyone, again. Great weekend to you all.